Welcome to Ejil, the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Ejil, the podcast. My name is Sarah Nouwen. I'm an editor-in-chief of the European Journal of International Law. The International Criminal Court, the world's only permanent international criminal court based in The Hague, has been widely criticized for its selectivity in terms of whom it prosecutes and whom not. But in the third issue of EGIL this year, volume 34, we feature an article that is critical of another form of selectivity. Selectivity in terms of whom the court cites and whom not or more specifically, the selectivity in terms of the nationality of the laws, including the case law, that it invokes and those that it ignores. The article shows that the International Criminal Court, which thus far has only had African descendants in the dock, hardly ever cites African laws. The article is authored by Stuart Manley, Pardi Sterani and Raja Ghazaya. Stuart is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Malaya in Malaysia. Bardis is Associate Head of the School of Law at the University of Sunderland in the United Kingdom, but was previously at the University of Malaya. And Raja is Distinguished Professor of Economics at the Asia-Europe Institute, University of Malaya in Malaysia. With me today are the first two authors. Stuart, welcome. Thank you. Hi, everybody from Malaysia. It's really an honor to be invited to participate in this podcast. Wonderful to have you here. And also wonderful to have you, parties. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Good. Let's get going and let's go into the article. But before we go into the substance, just something about how this article came about. I'm always intrigued when I see a piece with three, four, five authors. How, how does that happen? Does one sit in the pub and come up with an interesting discussion and then thinks we should write about this? Or... Are there different um, reasons and methods or ways in which one gets to co-author? Actually, the idea for these articles began with Stuart back in 2016, and it has uh, evolved a lot since then. Uh, Stuart started researching this topic as part of his PhD. Uh, At that time, we were colleagues at the Faculty of Law, University of Malaya, and uh, one of the modules uh, I was teaching was research methodology for our uh, master and PhD program. Uh, So as I was teaching uh, research methodology, it led us to have some interesting discussion about uh, Stuart's research and his proposed methods. Uh, What caught my attention was the fresh perspective, especially in how the method can evaluate and uh, look at the relationship between the International Criminal Court and Africa in a more scientific way. Uh, In 2021, I joined the team as Stuart supervisor. I partnered with another uh, supervisor, Professor Raja Razia, as an economic expert who uh, monitor and evaluate uh, the type of the methods, uh, data collection, and data analysis of the research. And uh, my role was to provide insights from uh, a legal standpoint, uh, bringing perspective to this unique research. Thanks. Now let's go into that article then. So let's start from with the title. Your article is titled The Non-Use and Non-In-Brackets of African Law by the International Criminal Court. 
Now, for some people, this may be a bit obvious, like the International Criminal Court is an international court, and probably an international criminal court applies international law. So why would it even look at national law? Thank you, Sarah, for that. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, one would think that international courts would cite and look to international law and the decisions of other international courts. And in fact, we found that uh, the International Criminal Court does mostly that. It actually looks a lot to the cases, for example, of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Um, but we also found that there are citations to national laws. Um, there are primarily two ways, two avenues, um, in which courts use these national laws. The first is in the interpretation of law. Uh, so there is no guideline or rules about how or what sources the International Criminal Court can use to interpret law in its own Rome statute. So the court actually turns to the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which is, at least in our view, a very flexible uh, law that allow, and a flexible methodology that allows the use of many different types of authorities. And one of these is national laws. So we found that the International Criminal Court was using this, actually, this avenue quite a bit uh, so to, to interpret uh, vague parts or uh, ambiguities in the Rome Statute. The second primary avenue that we found in our research uh, was in the court's use of general principles of law. Uh, so there is a provision in the Rome Statute that provides that the, the International Criminal Court uh, must, in certain circumstances, apply these general principles of law. But general principles of law are derived from national laws. Uh, so, the, so courts don't actually apply the national laws directly, but they derive these general principles from the national laws. So in both of these instances, we found that the Inter International Criminal Court does look to actually national laws, although it seems odd, like you say, uh, that an inter international court would do that. There are instances when it is appropriate to do that. Okay, so the statute provides for it in some circumstances, and then the court also uses it for the whenever it wants to interpret provisions. And if I remember correctly from your article, you say it mostly does it in the context of interpretation, far less so in the context of principles, because it doesn't like to go to general principles in the first place. But now let's have a look at what you established. So your study is an empirical study. You've looked at all or an enormous amount of cases, not exhaustively, not all cases done by the ICC, but a sample. What did you establish? What did you find about citation practices? Well, I'll, I'll take this on this question, if you don't mind, parties. Um, so we, we looked at, as you, as you said, Sarah, just a slice of all of the, the decisions of the International Criminal Court and just a small portion of all of the citations of, made by the International Criminal Court. But these are our numbers uh, for listeners to kind of get a feel for things and why we thought this was worth uh, raising and, and writing about. So our, our, our database contains information on 16,192 citations. Out of those slightly over 16,000, we found uh, citations to 247 national laws. So it's not a lot, all right? It's, it's not a lot, but it's still enough to, to get uh, some interesting information. Um, 
and, and this is where I think things get interesting. Out of those 247 citations to national laws, 246 were to non-African laws. And so remember that all the defendants before the court and all the cases that we looked at were African situations. Uh, so that's, I mean, what, uh, quite a stunning uh, disparity in our view. Um, and th by the way, this one citation was to a uh, criminal statute of Nigeria. And in fact, Nigeria is not a country that has any defendants before the court. Uh, so secondly, we also took a look at Global South and Global North, not just Africa, but we looked at, at citations to the Global South national laws as well. So again, out of 247 national laws, we found 244 to the Global North and only three uh, to the Global South national laws. And these were again, Niger the Nigerian law, as well as the Brazilian and the Mexican law. Uh, so based on those kind of numbers, we thought, wow, this is, this is really, uh, Intriguing, let's look into this. Uh, what's going on here? So, as you explained, you say we, we haven't looked at all cases, only a slice. And you mentioned that impressive number of 16,192 citations. But in your article, you're actually very modest because you say, yes, there are 16,192 citations, but they come from only, only 392 records which is, in your words, a minute portion of the total ICC records issued as of the 23rd of October 2022, namely 45,216. So, you, but you make an argument about we shouldn't be too worried about generalizability. Can you explain that point? Because there's a huge, uh, I mean, in, in academia generally, there's a huge focus on generalizability. What's your response to that type of emphasis? Sure. Uh, Parties, would you like to take this or would you like me? You can go ahead, Mr. Ward. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, so yes, uh, generalizability is, a, a, I, I, I would say, is the gold standard. Um, if you can get that, that's great. Uh, in our case, we were not aiming for that necessarily because we're doing what we at least consider an exploratory study. So we didn't have a database in which we knew exactly how many citations uh, the International Criminal Court has made. Uh, so instead, we, we wanted to look at a, a, a sample size that was significant enough to find some interesting results. Um, but we didn't aim for that gold standard, at least not yet. Uh, and, but, but still, I mean, based on what we found, uh, we think it's interesting, but you're right though, uh, Sarah. One cannot say that these other records out there do not contain uh, many citations to uh, to African laws or to even global, source, global South laws. So we do urge in our, in our article to uh, take the, all of this data uh, cautiously um, and, and let's, let's, let's look at it and, and analyze it, but remember that there are uh, serious limitations to it. And in fact, I would suggest that to empirical work generally, uh, there are, it, it brings interesting insights into courts, for example, in the practices of courts, but there are serious limitations, and we try to make that clear in our in our piece. And we hope that listeners as well will take uh, this these these limitations as something that must always be kept in mind when looking at these kinds of statistics. Okay, so with these caveats in mind, we can go on and we can refocus on your slice of the pizza, the, the cases that you have looked at, and then you, so you found. 
very limited references to African laws. And as you highlighted yourself, even though most of the or all of the defendants of the cases that you looked at were from Africa. And in a way, it's not surprising because there have been several African judges on the ICC. What then do you think explains the limited references to African law? So uh, from from what we've done uh, in our article, we try to identify uh, some reasons that are, one could say, holding back the court uh, from referring to uh, African laws and global global South laws more generally. So we're, we're very happy and uh, we find it very encouraging that the ICC does have a number of African judges on it. Um, we think that that is a, is a very important aspect of what the ICC does um, and, and what who who sits uh, and, and makes up what the ICC does. But we still, uh, dis- even if there are uh, judges from Africa on the court, we still find that there are some obstacles that need to be uh, explored. And we, we've identified in our article three major sort of challenges. Uh, and the first is judicial biases. I mean, all, I, I think it's fair to say, based on other studies, that, that all judges have biases. We, we don't use that in a negative sense. Uh, we just have our preferences. And there are clearly uh, judicial biases towards uh, certain uh, types of, of uh, languages, for example, that we're familiar with, certain laws that with which uh, a judge may be familiar with as well. That's sort of the first level. Uh, that we look at. Uh, the second level are some of the more practical difficulties that judges may have in accessing and using uh, laws from Africa or the Global South. So these are, for example, issues like the availability of laws uh, from, from Global South countries. Uh, also, again, language uh, can be a, a major barrier to using these types of laws. And uh, That's the second level, sort of practical difficulties. And the third level is something that in the article we try and touch on, which goes deeper uh, than these practical difficulties or even judicial biases, which is, uh, and we get our inspiration from TWAIL, the Third World Approaches to International Law, uh, and look at how the uh, there's a deeper sort of systemic issue uh, in the sources of law that prevents the use or at least discourages the use uh, of, of Global South and African laws in particular in our case. And there uh, we look to uh, the, the, uh, the formation, uh, the construction of these sources of law and the impact of things like Eurocentrism uh, at uh, colonialism. And so we draw upon a number of these Twail scholars work uh, to show that it's the actual fabric of the sources of international law uh, that are sort of stacked up against the global south and make it uh, so that they are not even recognized really as part of what the sources of law are. So back to that fabric, or speaking more about that fabric, you also make a link in the article between the relation or between your findings and the relationship between the ICC and Africa. And we we all know that, you know, following the news that that relationship has been rather rocky, because as Lina Engbo Gisel has argued on the pages of EGIL, African states expected a different type of court when they signed up for the court than the one that they got. At least that's um, what they 
experience what they see. Um, and you write, it is arguably the ICC's disregard for African concerns that brought the relationship between Africa and ICC to its nadir. And we can indeed think about African concerns such as peace mediation, peace versus justice, concerns about the equality among states and, and the, the debate about immunity. But then you go on, paying greater attention to African concerns and national institutions, including their national laws, would arguably go a long way to alleviating the current conflict. And I was just wondering, do African leaders read the thousands and thousands of pages that you've been going through and then notice, actually, we don't get cited here. Do you really think that the more references to African laws per se would remedy that conflict that is at such a deep, um, at a deep level? Uh, actually, the relationship between Africa and International Criminal Court is a really complex and multifaceted one marked by a combination of support, criticism and uh, nuanced interaction. To understand this dynamic, it's essential for us to delve into the historical context and specific challenges and concerns that shape the relationship between ICC and uh, African state. Uh, first of all, it's crucial to recognize that uh, Africa has played a central role in the ICC operation since its, uh, its inception. And uh, many African countries were early adopters of the Rome Statutes and they actively supported the course creation as a means to address uh, grave crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. Uh, the initial, this initial uh, support reflected a shared commitment to justice and accountability for this uh, heinous crime uh, on the continent. However, over time, a strain in this relationship emerged, and uh, one key issue that has uh, get the attention is the disproportionate focus on African cases by the ICC. As we can see it, uh, a significant portion of the course cases and investigations have been centered on Africa, which leading to accusation of bias and perceptions that uh, ICC uh, disproportionately target African uh, leaders. Uh, this kind of imbalance has fueled suspicion that ICC is influential by political consideration with alleging uh, neo-colonial uh, motives. So in this article, in our article, uh, we explore a crucial, crucial dimension of this relationship, the underutilization of African legal system and jurisprudence within the ICC framework, which raises question about whether the ICC is uh, genuinely receptive to African legal perspective and how it engages with regional legal expertise. And uh, one key aspect of this uh, underutilization revolves around the limited incorporation of African customary law and regional human rights instruments into the ICC proceeding. And uh, although um, African legal systems have reached traditions and a wealth of jurisprudence that could uh, significantly contribute to the ICC understanding of, um, of, uh, of complex cases, the court has not been fully harnessing these resources, which can, um, which can contribute to the combination of factors, including uh, the court's uh, Eurocentric legal framework, uh, uh, resource constraints, lack of 
uh, awareness or expertise within the court about African legal system, uh, the complexity, the complexity of uh, the ICC mandate, which may lead the court to prioritize its own established jurisprudence over uh, less familiar uh, legal traditions, and finally, the political dynamic and uh, consideration. And uh, the thing is that ICC heavily uh, rely on its own statute and precedent, uh, which predominantly draws from Western legal tradition. Uh, Their own statute uh, doesn't fully encompass the diversity of legal system and uh, principles found across the African country uh, continents. And uh, the Eurocentric approach of the ICC has resulted in a significant disconnect between the course procedure and the realities of the African legal context. And this disconnection stems from a failure to adequately incorporate African customary law uh, regional human rights instruments, uh, legal pluralism, and also uh, and also uh, local legal expertise. So you make in the article a, a strong argument about why the court should cite African laws more and and more laws from the global south in generally, and or in general. And the the key points you make there, if I recall correctly, is to cre- increase equity, to increase legitimacy and to improve the quality of judging. But I also wonder, do you think it would have made a difference in terms of the outcome? Would we have seen radically different outcomes on the different points in which they resorted to national law or didn't resort to national law? Would the case law of the ICC look fundamentally different if they had considered African law? Of course, I think uh, it would would, uh, make a huge difference. And um, I believe that, you know, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the relationship between Africa and ICC has been marked by geopolitical factors, including, you know, tensions with uh, the African Union. Uh, The role of the regional human rights instruments, such as the African Charter on Human and Peoples, uh, represent a value uh, valuable resource for the ICC. Uh, but the integration of these instruments pose uh, several complexities. And for example, one significant challenge is, is rec- reconciling the ICC global jurisdiction with regional human rights instrument, which is specific to the African continent. And by integrating potential conflict may arise uh, when ICC seek to apply this mandate uh, and while at the same time respecting the principle outlined in the regional instruments. And these instruments may have uh, uh, legal standards and interpretation that differ from those established uh, by the ICC. But what I'm interested in is, um, you know, you look at these cases about state of proceedings, or you look at what does it mean to tell the truth? Had we looked at African law there, would we have had a different outcome on the question of stay of proceedings or not telling the truth. Maybe I can jump in. And uh, I, first I want to echo Pardis's point, which is, at least for me, the use of African law by the International Criminal Court would symbolically be a very meaningful step. Um, it may or may not change the outcome of actual cases, 
or the outcome of actual issues in the court, uh, or sorry, in the case. Uh, but whether it does or not, uh, our position is that symbolically, uh, at least examining the laws of the country that, you know, where these, these alleged crimes are occurring is a really important step. Um, and, and although, you know, leaders in Africa may, I mean, they, they, I'm sure they don't go in, go and look at citations. Uh, but if the court decided to make it, started to incorporate this kind of a practice uh, then and made it public and people started to talk about it, then, then I think they would pay attention to that. It, it might not change their, their view towards the court. But I think st we still think it's an important step. Uh, with respect to the actual change of outcomes, uh, this is where sort of our empirical work, again, has its limitations. Uh, we didn't go so far as to actually compare, let's say, a U.S. law. Maybe, let's say that the ICC uh, uses a U.S. law to interpret uh, a vague provision. Uh, we didn't go and compare the U.S. law with, let's say, a Sudanese uh, law, which maybe the defendant was from Sudan. We didn't compare those and say, okay, would this have changed the outcome of this particular issue in this case? Uh, that is very interesting work, I think. Um, we didn't, unfortunately, take that further step, but it's, it's a limitation of our study. But I think, uh, regardless, uh, we, we, don't, we cannot actually know whether the outcomes would be changed, but even if uh, they are not changed, we still think it's important that the courts actually go and, and look at these laws and see whether they're relevant or not. Great. You've now given plenty of people across the world topics for a new PhD project. And we look forward at EGIL to receiving that article in our pipeline. So what difference does it make for the specific case? And you have emphasized what difference it makes symbolically and in the ICC Africa relationship. So one thing, parties that you mentioned in your introduction or did the first your first comments was that you started discussing this idea in 2016. It is now 2023 and the article is coming out. This is what EGIL we call slow scholarship. It's like slow cooking, you know, it really takes its time. And I can imagine that it can be at times frustrating and also slightly anxiety inducing. We're putting so much time into this piece and is it ever going to get through all the rounds and hoops of peer reviews and more editorial comments? How have you experienced that process? And what would you say to authors who are going currently through a seemingly never-ending round of revisions? Yes, it's a good question. Uh, the process of getting this article published in European Journal of International Law was indeed uh, quite rigorous. <laughs> we went through um, several rounds of revision before finally achieving acceptance. Uh, definitely the feedback provided by the editors and by the peer reviewer improved uh, our article in a very well uh, method. Uh, we embraced this uh, process graciously and uh, the initial submission was just, I, I believe that it was just a beginning. And we took the reviewers' comments seriously, worked uh, throughout the comments to address their concern and suggestion. And I believe that each round of revision brought us uh, closer to refining the research, clarifying the arguments, and strengthening the overall presentation of the article. And through 
uh, bees are really challenging process. Uh, we not improve, only improve the quality of the article, we also manage to align it more closely to the high standard and expectation of the European Journal of International Law. Definitely the comments of the reviewer and the editors was really valuable and it helped us to improve uh, our piece. Well, I mostly hope that the reviewers are listening because they will be very grateful to hear this. You know, when you review an article, it's this rather unilateral action, you know, that there's a dialogue on the paper, but you never really have a chat then afterwards with the authors. So we will make sure to um, forward this podcast to the reviewers to thank them. And thank you, Stuart and Pardis, um, for the article together with Professor Rosaya. And Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Jamie Morris, our sound producer, for taking care of all the technicalities. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. For more EGIL podcasts and more international law, visit egil.org and egiltalk.org.